welcome back to the Seeking Proof Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell. And this week, as with every week, I want to challenge you with the most important fact in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, as we started this journey, before we get to some of the bigger questions down there, were we created or did we evolve, things like that, we started off by saying, I think we need to wrap some context around this journey. And so to do so, we started off by looking at this question of who is God through the story of the prodigal son, through God's own words. We then spent two weeks looking at God's purpose, which is to bring us back into an eternal relationship with him. And then last week, we looked at God's plan. How does he do that? And at the same time, not just leave us sitting here suffering while we're working through all of the issues related to our free will and choosing to accept that offer. I know this week what I said we were going to do was we were going to jump into this question of faith and what role does faith play in all of that. But it dawned on me, before we do that, I've been referencing this passage in Ephesians quite a bit, talking about that before God laid the foundations of the universe, he recognized it was going to take Jesus going through the cross to get us back into, into an eternal relationship with him. And I think this is probably a good moment to really stop for a minute and to focus in on the atonement. What happened on the cross that was so important? And then actually look at the resurrection that occurred afterward before we look at this question of faith. You know, the easy answer to this question is, I've been saying repeatedly, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sin debt of mankind. That's obviously the biggest answer to the question of what happened on the cross. We're actually going to talk a lot more about that next week. So hold tight on that one for just a week. Next week, we're going to address objections to this idea of the atonement, looking at a, a quote from Christopher Hitchens from a, a debate of his. We're also going to look at a quote from um, Richard Dawkins as we look at that. But as we're doing so, before we get to that point, this week I want to spend some time just talking about the other things that the atonement does for us, that it does for you and I, and that it did to bring us to this point. I think it's valuable to look at these things and to break this down and to spend a little extra time. If I throw these things out there and you go, well, I don't believe any of that happened, or I reject the idea that Jesus could pay the sin debt of mankind, it doesn't really help us lay much foundation. So I think a couple of episodes might be warranted here to really lay this foundation properly, to get us where we need to be, and that's where we're going to start today. So today I want to talk about what are the other things that the atonement does for us besides simply paying the sin debt of mankind, simply, like that's a small thing. But let's talk about that for a minute, because I think you'll find enormous value in that as we go forward. Now, point number one, as we look at this, the first thing that the atonement does is it forever answers the question, how much am I worth? How much does God love me? We can't begin to fathom and understand God's love for us until we really understand the atonement and what Jesus did on the cross for us, what God was willing to do for us there on the cross. You know, I think we all kind of look at each other and we all, we all recognize that we have, there's an inherent value in human beings that's kind of hard to explain. You know, I, I think from a, from a naturalistic model or an atheistic model, Richard Dawkins, I think, would say that we are merely the product of time, chance, and matter. Just given enough time, this is what ultimately happens. And we're going to talk a lot more about that when we hit the point of talking about evolution and whether or not that's actually true. But from an atheistic perspective, perspective a naturalistic perspective, if all we are is a highly evolved puddle of primordial soup, 
we don't have any more value than a piece of fungus or a, any other primate for, for that purpose. We are of no more value than anything else we see around us. If we came from a rock, then we're of no more value than a rock or a tree or a plant or anything else. There's no difference between us and any of these other entities that we find around us. But I don't think you believe that. I don't believe that. I don't think any of us believe that. And there's good reason behind that. But stop for a minute and ask yourself that question, why? Why is it that we don't believe that? We all know that we have enormous value of, as human beings. I, I love watching debates and Q&A sessions and, and watching as people go back and forth on this issue. And you find so many people who will identify as an atheist or identify as an agnostic who are just offended horribly at a passage in the Bible that relates to how a particular group of people they believe are being treated wrongly in the Bible. This is the hard part to understand, and, and please understand, I don't mean any offense when I say this, but if we're nothing more than highly evolved puddles of primordial soup, then there's nothing particularly special about any of us, and we really don't have any place to be offended when we see someone being treated poorly. So when you, when you look at this and try to wrap your arms around why that is, outside of a relationship with God, it's nearly impossible to do. Within a relationship with God and through the cross, I never doubt my value. And that's what's so amazing when we look at this question. I want you to think about this, and I love this quote from Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he laid down eternity and became one of us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So God laid down eternity and he became one of us. And he's been willing to walk for, the, for all those thousands of years leading up to Jesus on the cross, God was willing to walk that path, and he was willing to take that time and walk that path to get to that point and go through all of the pain and misery getting there. He laid down eternity to become one of us, recognizing, again, going back, it was going to take him going through the cross to get there. And Jesus would live his entire life carrying that knowledge of what was coming. Jesus waited that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the crowds came and the mob came to take him away and his disciples fled from him, he counted the cost at that moment. He didn't call a thousand angels to strike down the angry mob. He didn't speak a word and disappear or destroy all of them. He didn't perform a miracle that would have diffused the situation. He allowed himself to be taken by the mob and drug off to the Sanhedrin to be tried. As the Sanhedrin that night, remember the Sanhedrin was the Jewish authorities at that time. They were the religious authorities who were trying Jesus. Ultimately, they would try him for blasphemy and convict him of blasphemy for claiming to be God. But as they tried him and beat him, he never once, he never once veered away from the fate that was coming. He never once stepped back and said, you know what, on second thought, I'm out of here. This isn't worth it. He never once tried to save himself and leave us behind because he considered us that we were worth it. He counted the cost that night at the trial and that next morning when they hauled him off to Pilate, the Roman governor, and as the governor tried him and found him guilty 
and took him out where the Roman soldiers beat him nearly to death in, in a punishment called scourging. And it's, it's I hate to say, if you watch Mel Gibson's movie, you get a really good feel, The Passion of the Christ, you get a really good feel for what that looks like. And it was just brutal and impossible to imagine. But as he stood there being beaten nearly to death by his own creation, he never once backed off. He never once stood there and said, I, I may die for the sins of all of mankind, but for this guy who's whipping me with the whip, not for you. And he, he took all of the punishment of us upon his shoulders. He carried all of that punishment out of there. And when they led him and made him carry his own cross to be crucified on, he never once stepped back. He never once walked away from it. He counted the cost and considered us worth it. As they nailed him to the cross, he counted the cost and said, you are worth it. Through the pain and the misery and the suffering and, and the sin debt of mankind weighing down on him, a holy and just God standing there in human form being crucified, he never once backed off and said, I'm done, you're not worth it. He counted the cost and said, I love you that much. And from that day going forward, as the Romans murdered him on the cross that day, as they killed him and threw him in a tomb, he counted the cost and he said, you are worth it. And it doesn't stop there. After the resurrection, he sat there with his disciples, his friends, his closest friends, and he prepared them to go out carrying the gospel message, knowing that they, all of them but John, would face the most brutal and horrible deaths, proclaiming the gospel message. Again, he counted the cost, and he said, it's worth it. You're worth it. I'm worth it. So when we look at this question and say, well, how much are we worth? God would tell you, I'll, I'll step into an uncomfortable space here. I'm going to tell you what you're worth. You're worth my life. You're worth the most valuable thing in the universe, the most valuable thing in the universe. The life and the body and the blood of the creator of the universe, that's how much you're worth to me. That kind of knowledge carries with it a freedom. I love this line. There's a song called Control from 10th Avenue North. Um, but there's a, there's a verse in the song. The last verse in the song goes like this. You want me. Somehow you want me. The king of heaven wants me. So this world has lost its grip on me. That is amazingly insightful. All of these questions that we have, all of us wanting to know where do we fit in and, and what do we do and all of these things. Once and for all, the cross answers all of these questions. I never doubt for a moment how much I'm loved. And I never believe that God is angry with me. You know, the interesting thing when you look at all of this, from Satan's perspective, the cross represented the ultimate condemnation of mankind. So mankind after the cross, Satan for a brief moment had to believe, that's it, God has failed. They just crucified God on a cross. There is no coming back from that. And he never once grasped it. If you ever have a chance, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, is really entertaining. It's supposed to be, it's written like it's in a corporation, and so you had to figure at some point he worked in a corporation. But it's a series of letters going back between a senior demon and his junior nephew, and they're doing it from this perspective that they're trying to figure out what the enemy, and in this case the enemy is God, is up to. And they never can figure it out. For that brief moment, Satan must have thought, this is it. This finishes them off, and it's done. And he could not have been more wrong. 
That moment on the cross, God's love conquered everything, and it paid the sin debt that could never be paid any other way. And that's a good segue into the second point. The second thing that the atonement does, the second thing that the cross does that we're going to talk about this week, is once and for all, the cross destroys this idea of works. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a double-edged sword for us that we may not always understand as we look at it. The cross, once and for all, takes works off the table. Grace is what's delivered at the cross. Grace becomes the answer to all of this. And it's, it's so important that we understand this was never about judgment. This was never about judgment. If this was about judgment, God could have judged us from heaven without ever coming down and becoming part of this. You know, this idea that God sits in heaven judging all the bad things that we do, and he's cold and impersonal and distant and all of these things. Well, then why did he come? That doesn't make any logical sense in any of this. If all God wanted to do was judge us for all the bad things that we've done, that is easily accomplished from someplace else. You don't have to get your hands dirty if you're God and that's all you're after. This was always about saving us. This was always about a relationship with us. Jesus would make these comments when during his ministry, and they were just amazing because he'd look at a crowd, and you know a lot of that crowd was men, and he would look at them and say, you know, any of you guys, you've, you've heard it written in the Old Testament that you know committing adultery is wrong. And Jesus would look at them and say, I'm here to tell you the real standard is if you look at a woman and you lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And you know the guys in the crowd are going, what did he just say? If I can't look at, a, if I look at a pretty girl, that's going to convict me. And Jesus would look at him and say, if you lusted in her after your heart, you know what you did. You know what was going on between your ears. Jesus, in looking at them and saying, do you understand what perfection really means? He raised the bar so high, he ultimately got rid of the bar. The bar is so enormously high when it comes to works. When we look at the question of what would it really take to earn our way to heaven, Jesus would make these comments and say, you know, in the Old Testament, it said murder's wrong. If you're angry with your brother without good reason, you're just as guilty. And people were like, do you know my brother? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm sure my sister would say that quite often. There's no question in all of this. Jesus looks at it and he says, I'm going to raise the bar so high that you can't possibly get there on your own. That's a gift. That's not cruelty. That is the best gift in the world. Grace looks at us for who we honestly are. We're never going to get there on our own. And grace looks at us and says, it's okay, you don't have to. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. I'm going to do the hard work, and I'm going to get you there. And it's all going to be about me. Jesus looks at it and says, I'm going to do all the hard work. All you have to do is believe that I did it, that I could do it, and that I did it for you. Us putting our faith in him brings us into heaven and brings us back into relationship with him. Grace destroys this context, this, this idea of works. I want you to understand, I said this is a double-edged sword. Here's the other th issue in all of this. That issue is now taken off the plate. Responsibility is now in my hands. Grace takes the responsibility of getting into heaven and it puts it squarely in our hands. And grace says, you know what? I'm going to do, Jesus says, I'm going to do all the hard work. All you have to do is believe. But now 100% of the responsibility lands on me. Grace will stand in accusation. I said before, this isn't about judgment. 
For those people who said, God, it wasn't fair. You set us up for failure from the beginning. God would look at us and say, grace washed all of that clean. You had a choice. Your choice was to accept the offer that I made. Your choice was to accept my gift of salvation. If you stand on this idea that God is cruel and unfair and you reject the idea of grace, next week we're going to talk about some pretty harsh rejection of the offer that's been made. Rejecting the gift that's been given, it puts all of the responsibility on us. So it has lifted the responsibility off of us of having to earn our way to heaven, and it's given us a much more serious responsibility. I don't know if serious is the right word, but it's given us a responsibility in all of this, and our responsibility is to accept the gift that's been given. So the idea that grace grace will actually testify against those who reject it, and this is, this is what it all comes down to in the end. In the end, we either accept a relationship with God or we say, no, I don't need God. I'm going to try to earn my way there all on my own. And God loves us enough. He's willing to step back and say, okay, you can do that. But the cross once and for all destroys this idea that I have to earn my way to heaven. Number three, the cross transforms the disciples and they desperately needed it. You know, I mentioned before that all of the disciples except John are going to go to just horrific deaths. And it's what happens on the cross. The hopelessness of the cross is completely overturned with the hope of the resurrection. So when we look at this, and again, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about the resurrection. But when we look at this, the disciples desperately needed the, the defeat at the cross and the victory of the resurrection to propel them into their futures. The disciples would carry the gospel message to the first generation of the Christian church, and from there it spread and reached us 2,000 years later today. But without the transformation that occurs with the just, remember, Jesus predicted his death. He said, we're going to Jerusalem, and for, and for we don't know exactly how long, he had been telling them, I have come to be, my body is going to basically pay the sin debt of mankind. I've come to be a sacrifice for all of mankind. And when he told them that and walked them through it, they didn't fully understand it, but he told them, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I'm going to raise again. That process, that prophecy that he fulfilled, transforms the disciples. So the disciples desperately need the transformation that comes from all of this. So number three is the disciples. The cross, ironically, which was the greatest defeat that any of them had seen, three days later became the victory that propelled them to what would ultimately destroy the, the entire, it would destroy Rome. Rome, who could not be defeated by any external enemy, would ultimately be defeated by Christianity clashing so heavily against the values that had built the Roman Empire. So number three is the disciples. Number four, ironically, is the message. The message of Christianity is unique, and from an outsider's perspective, you may look at that and say, you know, it, all religions are alike. That Nothing could be further from the truth when you look at this. Christianity is unique. All, if all paths lead to heaven, if everything gets you back into relationship with God, then why in the world did Jesus have to go to the cross? The cross was the most brutal way to die. It required just tremendous suffering. When you look at all of this and you really walk through what happened that day, all paths do not lead to heaven. Jesus declares exclusively that he is the way, the one and only the, the one and only way to heaven. He claims exclusivity. And when you walk through what happened, there is no other such claim in any other faith system. 
No, remember, Christianity very clearly claims that Jesus predicted his death on the cross, his, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus predicted that. He was raised from the dead. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. There's a lot more evidence of that than you might realize. But Jesus predicted all of that. The cross becomes the exclusive message that he was trying to deliver. I love this quote. C.S. Lewis has provided us with so much information as we look at any aspect of Christianity. But I love this quote because it really does pinpoint what's going on here. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that to us. He, did, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The cross becomes a point where you have to once and for all reflect on what Jesus said and what he did. And you either accept it or you reject it. And again, going into this, he said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus recognized his body and soul and his body and blood were going to pay the price for the sin debt of all of mankind, and he was willing to do so. I want to go back for just a second to that point that Lewis makes. Jesus said these things, and he never gave his audience a choice. He made it very difficult on his audience, and he helped them to understand, I am the way. You are going to do this through me, or you're not going to do it at all. He made it very clear to his audience. And this idea that we can, well, we can accept what he said because he was a good teacher, but we really don't believe all that uncomfortable stuff about him because no one likes this idea that he was the only way to get there. And he would look at us and say, that's right, I am the only way to get there. Otherwise, why did I have to die on the cross? What was it all for if it wasn't for that? There's a lot of other things that the atonement does in terms of Christ's victory over sin and, and a lot of other things. And I think this is probably a good point for us to start wrapping up today before we get into next week's question of looking at objections to this idea and looking at the payment of, for, all of sin, for all of mankind's sin debt that God made on the cross that day. I love this idea in Isaiah 55. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The atonement is just the tip of the iceberg of what God means by that. I know it doesn't make sense sometimes when we look at that and say, but why did Jesus have to go through all of that? And God would look at us and say, you don't understand. This was the only solution for sin. Remember last week I talked about that God had the perfect plan. This is what's hard when you look at it, you say it's, it's just, it's so much. It just seems excessive. It doesn't seem like God should have to go that far. And God would look at us and say, everything I did is what was required. There was nothing extravagant that wasn't necessary. This was perfection that cured imperfection. 
This is that moment when we honestly have to look at ourselves and who we are. And I know there's so much that we're all unhappy about the world that we see around us. But we oftentimes are not willing to take ownership for so many things that are our responsibility. This is that moment where God recognizes it's okay. I understand everything that's gone wrong. And I understand there's a lot of things that you don't understand why it is the way it is. But I'm going to fix all of it. The cross is where his perfect plan came together and it fixed everything. You know, all those things that we talked about last week that grace does, and grace, again, coming through the cross, that grace has the ability to heal all of us and to fix all of these things. God's solution requires of me that I let go of what others have done to me. And again, go back and look at what we talked about last week for a bigger explanation of that. This idea of grace, this payment on the cross, fixes everything like we can't imagine. But there are some who would look at this and say, it's immoral, it's impossible, and it cannot be done, and it should not be done. And next week, we are going to talk a lot more about that. I want to thank you once again for joining us on this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. As always, if you've got questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website at prooftograce.com, or you can reach out to us via email at prooftograce at yahoo.com. You can also find our podcast wherever you get your podcast from, Thank you so much for joining us this week, and I look forward to seeing you next week as we finish this discussion. Bye-bye.